Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading this morning is the first chapter of Ruth. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 222 of the Pew Bible. People of God, hear the reading of God's word, which has been preserved for you throughout all of history. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Return, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people." And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let us pray. Bless us, Lord, that we will understand your word, that we will be encouraged by it, that we will believe in your greatness and your grace to your people because of it, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In addition to being one of the most beautiful pieces of literature written in the ancient world, Ruth is also one of the most encouraging because it focuses on the problem of human suffering. God doesn't ignore human suffering. He writes books about it, okay? The writer describes quite abruptly, as we see, the death of Naomi's husband and her two sons. And it gives this feel that Naomi just turns around and her closest loved ones are suddenly all dead. There are no descriptions of how they died or why they died. It reflects just how cruel and capricious life is. There's no explanation, no reasons, just senseless, shocking, shattering tragedy. Bam! Right in the first few verses. I'd seen my good friend Mike Sartell October of one year, and in December, his family, coming back from a family vacation, had a crash, a car, crossed the median, and he and his son were killed. And I'd just seen him two months before. Or Chuck Armstrong, a man who taught in our church in Columbus every Sunday. Monday, he gets to feeling bad. Tuesday, he checks in the hospital and is diagnosed with pancreatitis. And Thursday, he's dead. That's the feel. That's the feel, the clipped account of the loss of Naomi's husband and two sons. And so the rest of the chapter is devoted to unveiling the pain that she experiences. That's where we get to hear her heart and her dialogue with first her daughter-in-laws and daughters-in-law, and then the women in uh, Bethlehem. And it's interesting that she it says in verse 19, they got to Bethlehem, but then there's this pause and further unveiling of her suffering as she talks about her bitterness, and then in verse uh, 22, and they came to Bethlehem. It's like the story is not over until we uh, unveil the final part of her pain. And so it's about her pain, this whole book. And the whole first chapter presents that. But the title of this week's sermon, last week was Crying Out in the Bitterness of Life, and today it's the signs of hope in the bitterness of life. And what are the signs of hope 
that we see in this passage laced with such pain and suffering? Well, first, pretty obvious, and this is maybe the lesser of the two things, but I'll start with this. Famine has turned to harvest. They left in famine to go from Bethlehem to Moab. They come back, verse 22, from Moab to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. A fulfillment of what they had heard in verse 6, that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. And so there's this uplift At the very end of this whole chapter on suffering, there's even a pause in the Hebrew as it says, uh, they returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. So it has this sense of expectation. The downward spiral has taken a little upward spiral here. And the feel is, what is going to happen now? They've come back in the barley harvest. Hubbard says, one almost senses a delighted, slightly smiling narrators thinking, what a coincidence. They arrived just in time for a barley harvest. You know, it's that feel about it, the anticipation of what's going to happen. And I just wanted us to think just a little bit for ourselves about the wonderful parallel in our lives uh, that we have gone already from famine to harvest, or put it more generally, from emptiness to abundance. And the writers of the New Testament are constantly telling us that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been raised to new life. You were dead in sin, but now you're His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works famine to harvest. He says later in Ephesians 2, you were separated from Christ, alienated from God's people. You had no hope. You were without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're members of the family God of God. You are temple of God. In chapter 5, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So the New Testament is always setting before us that we are in the midst of harvest. Even in the suffering of life, the emphasis is on how much you have in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's so much reason to hope and expect great things in our lives. It's harvest. We're forgiven and accepted in Christ. It's harvest. We're His beloved children in Christ. It's harvest. All things work together for good in Christ. It's harvest. All circumstances, even the worst ones, are being used to draw others to Christ and to build us up in Christ. It's harvest. You were under judgment and the sentence of eternal death. But now, Paul says, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And the glorious part of our harvest... We're just tasting the first fruits of it. That's all we've got is just the first fruits. Paul says in Ephesians 1, you've received the Spirit. He's the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. You think, you mean all we've got, this rich, these riches that we have that are just overflowing. It's almost like this is just the ticket for the real thing. This is just the sign, the guarantee of what's coming for you, your inheritance in Christ Jesus. 
And so in this rich abundance that we enjoy, it's the first taste. It's really just the aroma of heaven to come and the feast that will be ours forever. And so I want to urge you, live as God's people who are in the midst of the most abundant harvest anyone could ever imagine. And you are already tasting it. The famine is over for you, brothers and sisters. Even though you're in the midst of suffering, you're living in the harvest. Secondly, though, Yahweh is with us. The second and last thing I want to mention is Yahweh is with us. Now, when Naomi cries out here in verses 20 and 21, we do hopefully enter into her pain and we're sympathetic with the immense loss that she suffered. But we kind of want to ask the question, yeah, Naomi, but what about Ruth? She doesn't even mention Ruth there, does she? It's just my bitterness. As Hubbard writes, she treats Ruth as if she were off stage despite her actual presence there. She doesn't introduce her. She doesn't praise her. She doesn't acknowledge her. You kind of feel the omission. What about Ruth? But the way the narrator has structured this passage, her glorious confession in verses 16 and 17, this astonishing, gripping, heart-stopping confession that has been quoted for thousands of years afterwards. This confession uh, is, it it flows into, you might say, it, it penetrates even Naomi's bitter cry. It still rings in our ears, even as Naomi is crying out in her suffering. And in a sense, you might say, now Naomi's cry is in the context of Ruth's confession of God's greatness and goodness, even though it doesn't appear that Naomi is recognizing it at that point. Ruth has left everything and put her confidence in Yahweh, and her faith tells us that Yahweh is worthy of absolute trust. He's worthy to leave everything for. And it creates hope in our minds as we think, well, I'm I'm with Ruth here, you know. She is following after Yahweh. She's returning to Bethlehem expecting Yahweh to be her God. And so this Moabite woman who believes in the goodness of Yahweh now in a sense represents the goodness of Yahweh with Naomi. Ulrich has said, Ruth embodied Yahweh's presence with Naomi for good, not ill. For good, not ill. Ruth was the assurance of God's love and care and purpose for Naomi. I mean, she's just standing there, this woman, even as she's crying out about her bitterness. Uh, you want to be, you know, like Kay and I do sometimes. There's somebody in the house that I'm not sure about, you know, and I'm pointing to her. And so you kind of want to there, sit there with Naomi, Ruth, Ruth. <laughs> That's the feel. Then also the way that he talks about Ruth in verse 22, it's not apparent at first, but when he says Naomi returned, he then separates Ruth and says, Ruth the Moabite, you look at it in verse 22, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab. Now, In in English, it doesn't come across so much, but in Hebrew, this is a huge marker. They left for the land of Moab. At first, it says in verse 6, Naomi 
comes back with their daughters. They're just kind of spoken of back from the land of Moab. But at the end, after her confession, Ruth came back from the land of Moab. She receives prominence. It's her coming back that suddenly comes to the forefront in in, in the language here. It jumps out at you that she has this prominence, this astonishing return of this foreign woman. Ruth the Moabite returned from the country of Moab. And you can understand saying Orpah returned because she went to her home, her homeland. And you can understand Naomi returning, but he uses the word return for Ruth. She had never been to Bethlehem. That's not her hometown. That's not her country. But it's an indication that from the point of her confession, she belonged to Yahweh and his people. And so her coming to Bethlehem was a return. It was a coming to her true homeland, uh, the the place and the people that she dramatically embraces in verses 16 and 17. So the chapter reads like this. Naomi has returned home empty, unfulfilled, bitter. But the most significant thing that the narrator wants to leave with us in, in the wake of that bitterness is this. Ruth the Moabite has come back. And so you're like, boy, what's that mean? Why does he underscore that? What's Ruth going to play in the future in this passage? Um, The narrator says it. It's almost as though he says this. She said all of this, Naomi, and yet Ruth was right there. That's the feel. Ruth was right there. And so the counter movement to death and emptiness is already in Ruth's uh, affirmation and her confession. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. So that we know Naomi is not alone. She will not be alone. The dawn of her uh, despair has already broken in in the person of Ruth. And I want to say to you in closing here that the seeds of good, the seeds of God's blessing are already there in the midst of your suffering. And you may be just as blind to them as Naomi was. Isn't that interesting? Here's Naomi crying out in bitterness and the narrator sitting there saying... But the seeds of her blessing were already there. The means by which God would save her from her bitterness was standing right there, and she didn't see it. That's encouraging, because there are times where you think, I don't see any way out of this. I see no light at all. I see no encouragement from God. It's all blackness. I can't see it. That's where Naomi was, but it didn't mean that it wasn't there. That is so encouraging. Right in the midst of our suffering, God is bringing salvation to us. He is bringing good to us. He promises all things will work together for good. Here are a couple of things, our signs of hope. Number one, we fellowship with Christ in our sufferings. That's a sign of hope that He has suffered before us. And therefore, he draws near to us in our suffering with sympathy. He attends us and upholds us and embraces us with the knowledge of what it is to suffer. And he makes himself known to us in our suffering. That's hopeful, isn't it? That you can taste Christ in your suffering? 
Would you swap for that? Would you swap comfort to know Christ? Secondly, He makes us like Himself in suffering. He refines us. The the picture in Malachi is He's refining the priest. He says, it's like I'm smelting silver. I'm I'm burning silver and I'm removing its impurities. And that's what He does with His people. He's making us beautiful in suffering, brothers and sisters. It's because He loves you that He would make you pure, make you more like Christ. Isn't that your greatest desire? want to be like Christ. So he gives himself to you in suffering and he conforms you to himself in suffering. Thirdly, he makes known his glory through our suffering. We have to hold our lives with an open hand and realize the Lord may do anything to us, anything to his people. He has and he does and he will. And we have to hold our hands wide open and say, whatever it is, Lord. He does not insulate His people from temporal loss. We will partake of the misery of this life right alongside everybody else. But it's how we react, how we trust Him, how we love others in the midst of it, how we worship. That's the glory of God that shines forth from our lives in suffering. Peter says, the glory, to people suffering, the glory of God rests upon you. It's like the picture of the nation of Israel and the, the fire by night and the cloud by day. And he says, God's glory cloud rests upon you as you suffer. That gives dignity. It gives eternal meaning to any pain that we encounter. And so we, we, we have more of Christ. We become more like Christ. We make Christ known to others. Fourthly, there's encouragement and fellowship with the people of God in suffering. Every kind of suffering that you could ever experience and any combination of suffering that you've ever experienced, God's people have experienced it. And they've believed Him in it. He's given them grace to believe Him in it. You're not isolated. You have no temptation, no suffering that has not been done by His people. And He gives us to each other for encouragement. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, We have been afflicted and we comfort you with the comfort God has given us. And so others will suffer and you're being prepared to help them. Others have suffered, they will help you. And the more he strikes against us, the enemy, to persecute or to uh, hurt or afflict us, the more it drives us to Christ and the more it draws us to one another. And remember that the pattern of Scripture, including Jesus himself, loss precedes fulfillment. It's just the way it is. The Lord Jesus, it says, suffered and then he was resurrected. It says in Romans 8, if we're God's children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Get it in your head. A suffering Christ calls me to follow Him. A suffering Christ calls me to follow Him. That is the opposite of what you hear on many TV shows. 
that He is so precious. He is such a treasure. You see His glory and the beauty. The ridiculousness of losing your life makes sense because you're following Christ and you have Christ. And be encouraged. Our Lord Jesus has passed through to resurrection. And that is what he will do for us. Be encouraged by Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus when he raised him from the dead. Because it says he was deeply moved. Probably the word means he was angry. It's a picture of what he will do for us on the last day because he cares about our complete well-being. He cares about our complete happiness and peace and comfort. As I said in Sunday school class, yeah, we believe in a health and wealth gospel. It is that one day we will be fully healed and we will have all the treasures of, of the new heavens and the new earth. In this life, anything may happen. And we look to what he will do, even to the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can participate in the life of Christ. We thank you that in him we have all things. We thank you, Lord, that as we suffer, there is amazing hope and purpose in all that occurs to us, all that happens to us. We rest in you, Lord. We look to you. We look to what you've suffered on our behalf and how you draw near to us and how you yourself have been raised from the dead. And that is the future that we will experience in you. Oh, Lord, give us grace that we so will trust you and so love you as to bring glory to your great name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away then shall my soul with rapture trace